Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Unscrewed. The show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I am your host, Jacqueline Friedman. Welcome back to Unscrewed. This week, we are honored to be joined by another of my wonderful contributors to Believe Me, How Trusting Women Can Change the World. We're going to spend some time talking about what Me Too narratives have looked like long before the internet and cell phones and all of that in Native country and also what Native women can tell us about the way forward. And we're going to be talking about all of that stuff with the amazing Sarah Deer, who's a member of the Muscogee Creek Nation and a law professor and a MacArthur genius and general badass fighting for the rights of Native women and girls and one of my personal heroes. So, Sarah, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This is a nice uh, break from the world. Yes. I've wrestled with whether I should make it more related to current events. And I'm like, we all need to also have things that aren't about pandemics. So, yeah. The work continues. It's great to talk to you. We're going to get into all of that stuff and more. But as you know, on Unscrewed, the first thing I do is ask everyone the lightning round questions. So this one feels more weighty than it usually does when I record. But what's been making you happy this week? Oh, my dogs going out for beautiful walks when seeing the other dog owners and waving and knowing this is our chance to get outside the house. Amazing. What is the best sex advice you ever received? My mother told me I should have all the sex I want, but always have birth control wherever I could feel it and touch it with my hand. That is really good advice. Yeah. That's like very non-shamey, like really practical advice for moms. So amazing. Yeah. What has been making you the maddest or saddest about the sexual culture lately? Well, I was just thinking the other day about the young girls that are 11, 12 years old and don't have somebody that's educated in their life that can help them understand what's happening to their bodies. I mean, you think we've all kind of gotten there, right? But there are still pockets of cultures and places on the planet where little girls are not told what's happening to their bodies. And so it's a confusion, there's shame. There's no way to sort of ask the questions that need to be asked. And that makes me really sad. And those pockets of culture are all around us, not far away. Yeah, absolutely. What is a myth about sex that you used to believe but don't believe anymore? 
that all men thought about when they thought about girls. This is back when I was probably 12 or 13, that the only thing they ever thought about when they talked to girls or, you know, had interaction with girls was they were always thinking about sex at all times. I don't know why I believed that, but I did. I mean, I think that's a pretty pervasive cultural myth. How did you learn that wasn't true? Just getting to know my boyfriends, my first few boyfriends and moving on into dating other partners through college. I just started to understand that there was actually some affection and some romanticism attached to the way men looked at women. Yay, men who have feelings. All right, last question. Who's somebody brave who's doing work to unscrew the sexual culture that you want to give a shout out to? Ooh, well, I'll have to give that to my co-author on this essay, Bonnie Claremont. She has taught me most of everything that I know about activism for Native women, and she pulls no punches, and she says no apologies. Yes, and we were supposed to have her on, but she got called away to an urgent work thing, so we're sad not to have her with us today, but very grateful to her for her contributions. I want to start at the moment when I emailed you and said, hey, we're working on this anthology. It's about believing women. Do you think you might want to contribute? And you immediately said, not only yes, but I know what I want to write and I want to write it with Bonnie. Can you talk about like how long that idea for your essay had been germinating and what it is and why, why it was on the tip of your tongue when I emailed you? When you reached out to me, Bonnie and I had been helping a young woman and, and then uh, several people in the community who were trying to hold a, a perpetrator accountable, somebody who has never been arrested and never been convicted, but has multiple victims, right? And this is not particularly unique to the Native culture. But this particular man had really worked his way into the activist community and was thought of as a leader doing some of the most prominent national anti-pipeline work environmental justice work. And we come to find out that he has multiple victims of both genders. And so we were reaching out to try to get people to figure out what we should do as, as a collective. And unfortunately, we just weren't able to hold this person accountable in the way that we thought they needed to be held accountable. And so we really wanted to be able to articulate this story at, at some level. We can't use his name because he's lawyered up. But we all know who he is. And so Bonnie and I wanted to try to articulate the kind of frustrations that we experienced with that situation. The name of your essay, we should say, is Gossip is an English Word, which you had fully formed when I emailed you. Can you talk about how that idea ties into the idea of holding perpetrators accountable? Bonnie and myself and other Native women who are trying to hold this person accountable were accused of just gossiping and spreading around bad information. It was very pejorative, right? When in fact, we wanted to talk about, well, okay, so he's not been arrested. He's not been to jail. What other kinds of accountability can there be? And the one we were looking for was one that would have been consistent with some of our traditions, which is this person is not banished into the wilderness, but banished from this high-profile work, the primetime work that Native people have been doing. And we weren't successful in doing that. But we really wanted to tap into that idea that, you know, we didn't always have jails and prisons on this continent. Uh, they were an import. And so there were ways that people were dealt with prior to having the law and order, the Western punishment system imposed upon us. And we were we were really wanting to talk about what that looked like. One of the things I loved in your essay 
is the idea that women believing and standing with other women can be its own form of justice. And I find that so profound. Can you talk about that a little bit? Have you seen that? It sounds like it didn't work in this scenario the way you wanted it to, but have you seen that work? How does that work? We we do feel we got some justice because even though this person still holds a high profile prestigious position in the movement, um, many, many, many more people now know about him. We hope that many people have been through being warned about him, have been able to stay away from him, to not be alone with him. And we hope that's prevented some of his predatory behavior. So that feels like we've done something, right? He may still be in a job, but there are many more people who know that he's a dangerous person. So that's one of the things that we were able to do. But thinking about the vast majority of survivors out there, you know, we never report, we never go to the criminal legal system. So does that mean that we don't get justice? Or does that mean that the justice looks differently when we achieve it? And for the past year, I've been interviewing, I've interviewed over 50 Native women and Two-Spirit people through a research project at the University of Kansas and asking people, what does justice mean to you? And just coincidentally, you know, I wasn't planning on, you know, what, what the most common answer was that, but the most common answer I got is just to be acknowledged. That would be justice to me because nobody believed me or, you know, people blamed me or I blamed myself. And just to be acknowledged, believed and understood would be for me a form of justice, especially since we're not going to engage with the criminal justice system. Even if we did engage with the criminal justice system, it fails us most of the time, right? Like, right, exactly. <laughs> even people who do report don't get justice in their criminal justice system most of the time. So even just being believed can feel transformative for survivors. I think that's absolutely true. Right. I've been thinking a lot these days, these weird social distancing days, about the part in your essay where you talk about the importance of women's spaces spaces where women can gather physically together, maybe to do crafts or to cook, how it's in these spaces that the safety can be created and the trust and the relationships that can be created where we can tell our stories, where we can do the non-stigmatized version of gossip. And about how we are all so atomized now into whatever passes for homes for us. And for a lot of people, that means that they're isolated with people who are not safe and the people who might be able to create safety and justice for them are less accessible. It's harder to connect to them. And I just wonder if you're thinking or seeing that at all or what, what you're thinking about. I've certainly seen a lot of discussion about this on social media. I've also seen a number of webinars and other kinds of conference calls for shelters and rape crisis centers and the like to get educated on what they can do, what should be done differently. Now, due to my full-time job teaching, I haven't had a chance to participate in any of those webinars. <laughs> but I have been really, really happy to see that the advocacy community, the people who run the shelters and the hotlines, are in communication with each other so they can give the best advice that they know for people who are essentially trapped right now. It's so scary. I mean, I don't... It is. It's so scary. And and those spaces, I mean, you make such a compelling case for why spaces where women can be together alone are so sacred, really. And that is so much harder now. 
and maybe for the foreseeable future. I don't know that there's a question here. It's just on my heart a lot right now. It really is. I mean, you know, this is feels like, what is this, day three, day four? I can't even remember now when this all, it's so, it's been so gradual from the end of uh, February. And my husband, who's a pandemic scholar, actually, he's got gloom and doom of another 18 months of really different kinds of living. I feel really excited that we do have tools now where we can have face-to-face contact. My father's almost 80 years old. I talk to him on FaceTime so he can see me and I can see him. And then that's making an assumption that everyone has access to the technology and the internet bandwidth to be able to have that kind of face-to-face interaction. Um, And people on reservations certainly lack that. Yeah. And also the privacy to speak freely on those connections. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there widespread Wi-Fi on reservations usually? Usually not. There are, you know, some tribes that are very close to cities. So like the Tulalip tribes in Washington state, it's right outside Seattle. There's a number of tribes right outside of San Diego and Los Angeles. But when you're looking in Montana and South Dakota and some of these remote areas of Idaho, you're probably not going to have stable enough internet to be able to sustain being in a class or being online with the support group. It's going to stutter a lot. And we take it for granted. I still remember dial-up. I'm sure you do, too. Sure, yeah. (laughs) And it was just, you know, I mean, you just learn to not be dependent on it because somebody in the house would pick up the phone (laughs) and that kind of thing would happen. And the other thing is just there's not a lot of cell phone coverage in a lot of Indian country. Again, because it's not really a lucrative business model to have, you know, poor Indians trying to pay cell phone bills. Remember when we used to see that Verizon map and it would show like all of the coverage on the commercials, those little dots where they didn't have any red, those are almost all Indian reservations. Really? Yes. yes. Wow. Now, things are getting better and there is definitely an effort to get broadband out there, but there are places on some of the remote reservations where you still can't get any of the brands, any of the networks that can give you complete coverage when you're in your home. So what are some ways that you're seeing Native women organizing against all these systemic obstacles? Well, several of the national and local organizations are getting together regularly through webinars and other kinds of online training. And just the social media, again, you know, when understanding that not everybody has access to it. But I was thinking the other day, I, was, I heard a lecture by a man who studies Alcatraz when all of the Native Americans took over Alcatraz in the late 60s. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. And they were talking about all of this organization that happened, you know, and I'm like, man, they didn't even have fax machines. I mean, you know, <laughs> they they organized a complete takeover of federal property basically through snail mail, you know? I mean, I can't imagine how much tenacity it took to try to get a critical mass of people all in the same place at the same time without cell phones. I mean, it really is amazing. And so I don't know how it was done. I've tried to ask a few people who were there, like, okay, how did this actually go down? And some of them can't really remember because (laughs) it's so long ago. But I was like, well, you didn't have cell phones and you didn't have fax machines. And, you you know, they had little newsletters and zines, I guess, type things that they would try to distribute. But it was all about who you knew and and who knew who and phone trees and let's get everyone over to San Francisco ASAP. I don't know how they did it, but they did it. Amazing. Well, it's inspiring anyway. I did want to ask in the case that you started talking about that the perpetrator you're talking about had survivors of both genders, because you you reference it a little in your essay, but how you think about talking about women's spaces as safe spaces for survivors and but then also 
Like, what do we need to be thinking about for the male survivors in our midst as well? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that because, you know, I often get that question when I'm talking about like the Violence Against Women Act or other kinds of work that I do. And people see it as very gendered. And there's a real concern out there, I think, on the part of many people that we don't gender this kind of violence because that leaves non-binary people, queer people. I mean, I struggle with it because I think it's important to talk about it as a gendered phenomenon, but also to not leave people out and... It's something that I'm always grappling with in terms of what the right language and what the right frameworks are to hold both of those truths at the same time. It's not that women and men need to be working on this issue separately, right? I mean, everybody, male, female, or otherwise, has a voice and a place and a role to play in the effort to end violence. But there are times when women need to be alone with other women, and that's okay, and we shouldn't feel shamed for it. There's a time and a place for it. And it often is in the aftermath of an assault when we're trying to provide care and comfort and support to somebody who's been deeply, deeply wounded by the acts of another. And and that space can be a very sacred space. What do you tell women when they're being attacked as gossips? How do you think about combating that argument? If we let that get under our skin, then it is going to become a barrier for us to continue to do the work. So we have to find ways to deflect it, whether it's through humor, whether through it's just ignoring that kind of language. We're going to hear it no matter what we do. So if we worry too much about the labels that we're getting, then we're not going to be able to, you know, we'll spend all our time worrying about that and defending ourselves and saying we're not gossips instead of just doing the work. It's hard not to get sidelined by that, particularly when really powerful people are calling you gossips and liars and whatever. But we just focus on the survivors and what they need, and that helps us keep centered in the work. So you basically just don't engage. There's a time and a place for it. But when there's somebody who's suffering, somebody who's in pain, somebody who needs some a lot of support, that comes first. I think I like the idea of even saying that to someone who's saying you're gossiping, saying, sorry, I don't have time to address that. There's somebody who's in pain and needs support, like sort of turning that around also and saying, like, look at yourself. And then we also have to think about people's job security, too, because if you out a coworker as a potential predator, then you, you could lose your job. And so I'm in a position of great privilege in this country, being a tenured professor at a university. There are things that I can say and do, you know, that people who are down on the ground grassroots level could lose their job over. And so I try to be really mindful of that privilege. And then someone like Bonnie, my co-author, she's been around the block a time or two. You know, she's been taking on the these kinds of predators from the late 60s on forward. And I've never heard her apologize ever for her work. It is like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And if it doesn't work out for you, that's your problem. I'm not apologizing for standing up for people who've been hurt. I love that. Just basically like a zero fucks attitude. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And her mother was that way too. We dedicated the essay to her mother, Elizabeth Deer, who's no relation to me. But (laughs) she talks about, Bonnie talks about one time her mother was visiting her in her office and there are all these binders, you know, on the Bonnie trains tribal officials on sexual assault response and things like that. So she had all these training binders on her bookshelves with different covers and different topics, you know, and, and her mom was like, why do you have all these binders? You know, why do you have all these like books on training materials? And Bonnie said, well, you know, because I, I go out and I have a curriculum and I train people on responding to sexual assault. And her mom looked at her and said, just tell them to stop. Just tell them to stop. 
why do you need binders to tell people to stop hurting each other? <laughs> and, you know, if you knew Bonnie's mom, if you got called before her to be accountable for your behavior, you were not going to come out of that unscathed. I mean, she would tell you what she thought to your face. And so her idea was, well, you don't need a binder. You just need to go around to everyone on the reservation and say, stop this. And were it that easy, of course, we would have. But I just remember that being a very humorous moment for me, realizing, you know, we've kind of commercialized all this curriculum and, you know, we've really worked hard on webinars and things like that. We could just tell people just to stop it. Just like stop it. Just cut <laughs> it out, man. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. How do you know, Bonnie? Well, I was a very, very young federal official once upon a time. When I graduated from law school in 1999, my first job was to work at the Violence Against Women office in D.C. So I um, flew out to Washington, D.C. the day after the bar exam and, and worked there for three years. And one of the first conferences I got to go to was Bonnie Claremont talking about sexual assault in Indian country at this conference, this national conference. And I had heard her name before and I thought, oh my God, I'm going to get to meet her. So I went in and sat in on her workshop and she shared with us a poem that a survivor had given her permission to share, which was called Dear Woman. I got chills. I was like, okay. So I went up and introduced myself and I just told her, you know, I'm so honored to meet you and all this kind of thing. And she was really nice. And then later she told me that she didn't know I was a federal official until later because I didn't come up and introduce myself in that way. And she said, I can't believe I would have been so nervous had I known that you were, you know, this big, important federal official. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you look at the pyramid of the Justice Department, I'm down like seven, eight, nine levels. So, you know, it's nothing to be afraid of. But I just remember that being kind of funny that I was so intimidated. And then, you know, she found out, oh, my gosh, I was intimidated. But that's really uh, sweet. She really has taught me so much. You know, she never finished college. There were a variety of life circumstances that that, you know, she just wasn't able to finish. And yet she has more knowledge in her little finger than 10, 15 of us combined. I mean, she's seen it all. She's seen everything. She has no fear. She is committed for the rest of her life to stand beside other survivors shoulder to shoulder. And you just don't learn that in the law school classroom. No, indeed. We didn't really do a lot of grounding in the beginning of the conversation because I was eager to jump in. But I wonder if you can share for listeners who are less familiar, 
What do you wish non-Native folks understood about why sexual violence is such an issue for Native women and girls? You've written entire books about this, but if you had a few minutes with somebody, like, what's the most important thing you wish folks understood? I think the biggest mistake that people make when thinking about Native people in the year 2020 is that all the harm is in the past. That, you know, there were these very, very sympathetic liberal white folks can understand, oh, we did terrible things. There was that Trail of Tears thing in the 1830s, and then there were the Indian Wars, and wow, we really treated those folks bad, and we should make up for those harms, but I'm not sure how. And they don't realize that it's happening right now at this very moment. There's a Supreme Court case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court that was supposed to be heard next month, who knows, um, that would take our reservation away from us. This is the Oklahoma case, right? Yes. There's a a wonderful podcast that Rebecca Nagel did for Crooked Media. I learned so much about that case. Right. And so to understand that it's not in the past, it's happening right now. The state of Oklahoma is spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on attorneys to declare our reservation null and void. And it's not something that's in the past. That's very much part of our current identity, and our current struggle. And so, because, and I don't think it's, I think our school system fails our mainstream population by teaching only about 19th century Indian history. Oh, for sure. Yeah, you learn about Indian history at Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah, maybe. maybe. And, and, <laughs> and, and that stuff, and what you learn is bullshit. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> So to understand that this is happening here and now, but it has very much connection to the past. And so you can't just look at hindsight as 2020 and going, oh, my my gosh, we shouldn't have done those terrible things. And then today we're a better culture now. And and really just the, the, the style and the types of enemies have changed, but we're still very much um, an oppressed people. And that's what I wish that more people knew. The centuries of structural oppression and violence have left Native people oftentimes in structural poverty and isolation, like we were talking about with cell phones and Wi-Fi and all of that, and that that contributes also to Native women and girls being especially vulnerable. Yes, absolutely. You probably can talk about the missing and murdered women better than I can, but it didn't come out of nowhere that Native women, right? Like, right. There's a really new groundswell of grassroots activism that is affecting legislation, and it's the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women movement, kind of borrowed from the Canadian parlance. And it's been modified. Some people say Missing and Murdered Indigenous Peoples or Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, or in the Navajo case, their traditional name for themselves is Diné, and so they're the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Diné. And, And so this has become this hashtag. The reality is, I mean, I have journalists call me every week wanting to pitch a big story about this crisis. And the first thing they always ask is, when did this start? When did this become a problem? And I have to kind of go do a 500-year history lesson with folks because they just don't know. And I I try not to get mad at people if they don't know. I mean, at least they're asking, right? You are very patient, but yes. And so on the flip side of that question, what do you wish that Western culture, American culture, however we want to define this, would learn from Native cultures about sexual violence, about justice, about women? With all of the very, very valid and important concerns about where we're headed as a prison nation and what mass incarceration is really doing to communities of color, 
if we as tribal nations want to take back control over crimes like rape, we have to be ready to decide what to do with people who are convicted in those systems. And we don't want to just become miniature versions of, you know, lock them up, throw away the key, because that hasn't worked for anyone. And when we're talking about in general, right? I mean, the, the prison industrial complex has not made the world safer for women. No, it has not reduced rape in any way either. Right. And I get that. But, you know, the tribal nations have not been party to that, have not been party to the mass incarceration, have been victims of it, in fact. And so we sit and we think about, okay, let's say the tribal nation is going to take a strong stance against rape, and we're going to we're going to create a system that holds people accountable in a way that makes sense to the survivors, right? So I've been asking people, what would you want as an outcome if it were a tribal nation that we catch early enough that they haven't already started incarcerating people because some do? And that's not necessarily a bad thing in every case, but what would you want? And again, there's a sense out there, again, I haven't really done all the research analysis yet, so I'm really speaking very prematurely, but it seems to me there's a real desire to have not just the acknowledgement from the perpetrator that this has happened, but acknowledgement from the entire community. And that is what feels like justice. You know, in some ways, tribes are in a unique position because we haven't been prosecuting very long. And so there's time to rethink and readjust and recalibrate and think about what a system would look like if it provided the kind of justice that survivors are seeking. And like I said, the most common term that I'm finding is believe me and acknowledge me. That's so elemental, right? It's so yeah. It's so simple. It's not easy, but it's very simple. Right. It should be. Yeah, it should be. It's very straightforward. I worry a lot about restorative and transformative justice processes and what they require of survivors, like the emotional labor they require, and also the ways that perpetrators, if they're good at talking, can make it sound good and then go on to continue perpetrating. But we have to try something else because locking people up is not getting it done. And many of the women I spoke to and two-spirit people I spoke to said, jail time is on the table you know, because there's been such a lack of enforcement in Indian country for centuries, really. There are predators on tribal lands right now that have hundreds of victims, hundreds. One just got caught uh, not too long ago. He was an IHS Indian Health Service pediatrician who abused some of his patients for over 30 years. You know, when you start talking about that and you start talking about restorative justice and acknowledgement, this is somebody who needs to be away from society. This person cannot live safely among us. And so we have to have an answer for that question. But Native people are as torn as I think all of us are in terms of how do we make our communities safe without treating people as disposable and locking them up with no hope. But I'm so encouraged that we're engaging the question, at least. It does sound like a wonderful opportunity, right? Like, you know, in in broader U.S. land, we, we have a lot of dismantling to do before we can build shit. New stuff, right? Like, and you're starting with a head start. Well, in a way, sometimes it's it's weird to think of it as a blank slate since we've been on this continent for 100,000 years. But in terms of a contemporary response to the contemporary realities that Native people face, we still have time to sort of take at least some of the tribes. Of course, we're all in different places, but some tribal nations have the ability to step back and go, okay, let's model this in a way that makes sense from the start. 
You know, let's not just replicate a broken system that was never ours to begin with. I love that. I love that. What I always wind up on is like, I want survivors to have options, which it sounds like is sort of where you're at too. That jails might be an answer in some small percentage of the time, but that it's not a reflex. Most of the time when I've, when I've asked these folks about jail time, they're sort of like, well, yeah, there has to be something to indicate to the community that this person is, is ostracized in some way. But I don't want to just send people to prison to get worse and more angry and more depersonalized and then come back into my community and hurt me worse next time. So there's not necessarily an objection to incapacitation in the sense that somebody is removed. But what the concern seems to be is that's not doing them any good then. Shouldn't we have more therapeutic types of incarceration, um, which look a lot more like treatment than like punishment? So some stigma, right? We need some stigma. I think so. Yeah. I think so. But yeah. also the opportunity for the path for redemption. Yeah. These are very, very, very small communities. Some of these remote communities, you know, with maybe 100, 150 people, they all know each other and they all know who the perpetrators are. Everybody knows what's going on in that community. But because there's not really been a response for so many years, it's all sort of secretive. And the idea is, how do we help this community? How can I, as an attorney from a different tribe, come into this community and sort of think through problem solving about what you do when someone molests their child? And it's going to look different for every community. But I would hope that the freedom of being able to sort of look at it in a fresh way and say, if you're creating a system today, knowing all of the bad things that have been tried and that haven't made women safer, what could we do to craft something that is fundamentally different than that? And that's what's so exciting to me about working in Indian country. I love that. I love that. Well, thank you for coming on the show and sharing it with us. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Where can people find you? What are you up to these days? Do you have any calls to action you want to share with folks? No, I'm at the University of Kansas. If people want to find me, I do tweet at Sarah Deer, S-A-R-A-H-D-E-E-R. Usually pictures of foxes. That's what I'm into these days. It's delightful. That is the content yes. I need on social media right now. I sort of alternate. You either get a cute picture of a baby fox or some kind of terrible thing that Trump has said. And <laughs> sort of, it's like this roller coaster ride on my Twitter feed. I don't really Instagram. Folks want to chat with me. They can certainly reach out to me at the University of Kansas. I recently published an article in the Yale Journal of Law and Feminism about engendering in the Indian law to make sure that we're thinking about feminism when we're thinking about Indian law. And Love that it. that's my newest piece. Also, I recommend your book, The Beginning and End of Rape, all the time. Thank you. Listeners to the show have probably heard me say it before, but go read Sarah's book. Anything else? I can't think of anything. Everybody needs to stay safe and stay well and get your old hobbies out. I'm sewing. I haven't sewed in years. Cross stitch. You know, I do vulgar cross stitch. I have one of your vulgar cross stitches and it is a prized possession. Yes. So I'm doing some more of that in between putting all my classes online and trying to be very compassionate and kind to all of my students who are probably just having a horrible time right now, especially those that were supposed to graduate and they have everything up in the air. It's so sad. And I just want them to take care of themselves first. Absolutely. Everyone needs to put their own oxygen mask on first right now, for sure. 
And I am on all the usual socials. I'm at Jacqueline F on Twitter and Jacqueline Fable on Instagram. You can find me on my website, JacquelineFriedman.com, where when I start booking new events again, I will put them there. You should get Believe Me and read Sarah and Bonnie's phenomenal essay called Gossip is an English Word. You can get the book wherever fine books are available. A lot of indie bookstores right now are doing curbside service and local delivery and $1 media mail. So there's lots of books available in the world. And also it's an ebook if you want to just download it and that's available to you and also an audiobook. And if you've read Believe Me and liked it, please review it on Amazon and or Goodreads. You don't have to have bought it on Amazon to review it on Amazon. And that is how you help us come up in the search rankings so that more people will find the book. Unscrewed, this fine podcast is produced by yours truly, Jacqueline Friedman, and edited by Natalia Rodriguez. Amazing. We are part of the ACAST network, although you can find us wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our in and out music is by The Pink Tiles and our cover art is by Nicole Dodonna. Until next week, I am wishing you safe and happy sex lives. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.